You're listening to the Historical Bookworm Show. For lovers of history and readers of inspirational fiction, join your hosts, Kylie and Darcy, for author interviews, a pinch of the past, and special bookworm reviews. Hi, this is Kylie Woodley. And Darcy Fournier. Today's guest is a New York Times bestselling and award-winning author of over 40 books and numerous essays. Her many historical novels, most based on the lives of actual people, speak of timeless themes of hardiness, faith, commitment, hope, and love. Her works have sold over 1.5 million copies and have won literary awards such as the Wrangler, Willa Literary Award, Will Rogers Medallion, and the Carol Award. Jane Kirkpatrick, welcome to the Historical Bookworm Show. Well, thank you for having me. It's a delight to be with you today. I'm so excited to talk about your new book because it is a Western setting. But before we get into that, we like to start with a fun question. So what is your favorite holiday and why? Well, happily, you sent me that question ahead of time so I could think about it. And, and so I, I had a hard time deciding because I like a number of them, but I decided it's Easter or as my dad used to call it, Resurrection Sunday. And it's my favorite because it doesn't have any of the pressure that is associated with Christmas, which was my other favorite. It doesn't have the association of having to get presents or did I get the mail and how about the cards and all of that. It's actually just this wonderful celebration of the resurrection and of the sort of new beginning. It's the time of the year that reminds us that it's all new beginning with the way things are coming up out of the ground and, and we put aside a, a heavy winter often. And so it's like a turning point. And for a writer, the turning point is one of the most critical parts of the story. And so I equate Easter with a turning point. And so that's why it's my favorite. And Easter, I think a lot of times brings community and families together with sunrise service and your Easter meal. And if your family does so, maybe an egg hunt or something like that. And I think Easter is definitely one of my favorites too. Well, if you add family and you add all these wonderful little outfits with children and grandchildren and everybody gets all dressed up and I, I remember having a little yellow dress when I was a little girl at home on a farm in Wisconsin and, and actually picking up a frog on the way to, before we went to church once. I must have been about four, but I remember because my mother was just, don't pick up that frog because it has <laughs> on. It was, it was memorable. Let's put it that way. Oh, wow. That's so funny. Oh, yeah. I remember the frilly dresses when I was little. And hanging out with the cousins. And like you say, there is just that low pressure celebration because we're just, we're here to celebrate the resurrection, but we don't have to buy three gifts for everyone. So, yeah. And it's such a great, I don't know, just it's like a take a deep breath time of the year to really appreciate life and, and what we've been given, both in the resurrection and in just life. So, yeah, it's just a great renewal reminder. Absolutely. Now, you have quite a few books under your belt, and I noticed that most of them are actually set in the American West during the 1800s. So what personally attracts you to that period? I think it's because my husband and I made this decision in the 1980s to both leave our jobs and move to what I call Rattlesnake and Rock Ranch, which was a very remote 160 acres of nothing but sagebrush and 
rattlesnakes and the promise of a spring. Our mailbox was seven miles from our life there, and we built a life there for 27 years. And I did a lot of thinking when we were first there trying to figure out how these other pioneering women handled all of the kinds of strain that they had in their life. And I had read as a child, because children's books really affect us, I believe. So as a child, I read the Laura Ingalls Wilder series. And suddenly here I was, <laughs> not a little house on the prairie, but a little house in a canyon with a river nearby. And really, it was a spiritual journey to go there and to take a risk that for whatever reason, this is what God had called us to do. So there's, I'm always thinking about the fact that I knew that if it didn't work, if it was just too awful during the time we were building, that I had another alternative, we would leave. I gave my husband a year to get the house built, to get electricity, to get a phone, or I wouldn't be there. But the women that I love to read about, diaries and memoir of pioneering women, they didn't have that luxury. They didn't know that it might get better if they had power. Uh, and so I often ask myself, where did they draw their strength from? And that really became part of the theme of what I work on when I'm writing my historical novels that are based on real people. And so I know that they did find a way to keep going. And so I, I like exploring that. So I think it's the combination of what it might have been like 100 years before my husband and I were doing what we were doing. And how did those women persevere? What were the rungs of the ladder that would get them out of the cellar of sorrow that almost all of us at some point in our life experience for whatever occasion. So yeah, so it, so it's, it improves my own mental health <laughs> to, to think about these other women, particularly when we were there and building our life there. And the delight is after 27 years there, we moved back to Bend, Oregon, and the property is now part of or one of Oregon State Parks. And, it's, and so it's story of our journey going there, and I wrote a book about it called Homestead, um, that story is going to live on in a really, I hope, interesting way for people as they come to visit that particular property as a historical site. It's a little disconcerting to think we have a historical site, but not that old, I don't think, but it's also a great statement of God's provision and, and our having stepped out in a cloud of faith, believing we wouldn't fall through. And we'd, so I think that combination is why those that particular time period of the American West really appeals to me. Wow, that really is personal for you, getting to walk through that. And like you said, you had the option that at any time you could say, okay, we're done. We're, we missed God's guidance. We're going to try something mm -hmm. else. But in the 1800s, they didn't have that. Wow, that's really cool. At the point at which we had to dig our phone line seven miles, a, a ditch seven miles, and the first time we did it, it didn't work. And so I'm telling you, at the end of that one, I was like, okay, maybe this is it. <laughs> you know, maybe that's what we doing. But the second time, we always had people to help. We had friends and we had birds, and it was really a wonderful community experience, just like that Easter experience can be, so... Yeah, they say write what you know. So that's definitely you've had your personal experience. And I think the whole reason we write is because we believe that words can make a real difference in someone's life. What was an early experience where you learned that language has power? Well, it's interesting that you would ask it that way, because when I 
do some presentations or when people, when I teach writing classes, I often talk about when I learned that words had power. And it was actually, I used to always write little poems when I was younger, and I had teachers who complimented my writing. But my first career was as a clinical social worker, and I became the director of a mental health program. And my writing then was about administrative things and trying to get services for people with mental illness. And I would often write to legislators and uh, government officials, and they would call me and they would say, no one ever said it that way. We really need to do something about this. And so that was the moment that I thought, oh, so words have power. And if I use them well, maybe I can touch the lives of other people. But it was only later that I actually started writing for other people to read. And I started out writing nonfiction. And I wrote an essay that I like to write those short essays that go in the back of magazines. (laughs) And so I had written one about my husband teaching me how to fish and how that had just become this wonderful part of our marriage. And I wrote it and I sent it to a regional outdoor magazine and they had held it for like a year and then they sent it back. And I thought, well, it must have had some interest, but they didn't use it. So I sent it to a larger market. I sent it to a national magazine called In Fishing. And there was one woman on the masthead, which is the list of editors on the front. And so I sent it to her and they bought it immediately. And when it was published, it was the first time that I began to get letters and phone calls from, from mostly from men. And they would, one man called, I wasn't there. My husband took the call and he was from Arizona. And he said, when I read this, he said, my wife just passed away. And he said, I felt like this was like a eulogy to her. He said, I just hope that's how my wife felt about my fishing and about the two of us fishing together and all these different events and taking fly tying classes together and letting he would let her bring the dog in the boat, which is what my husband let me do. <laughs> and so I, that then I realized, okay, these words can move people. And of course, that's one of the primary functions, especially of fiction, is to move people. Maybe it's to move someone to take a trip to go visit that historical site, or maybe it's to move someone to rethink the way in which they've been looking at some problem in their life. And so that was the moment I would say that in fishing was the moment that that writing for someone else to read came back to say to me, your words have power. Yeah. Well, that's just hearing about the husband who had just lost his wife. Yeah. And that just gives me chills that you could write something that was relatable to him. And I know when we write about something that we really care deeply about, I think that connection's even deeper, just like you writing to get funding for the different programs you're writing. As you're doing that, you're caring about these people you're trying to help. And so that's definitely using the power of language for the things we care about to help other people. I just love that. That's amazing. Yeah. Now, is there anything especially interesting that you haven't covered in other interviews that you could share with us, or perhaps there's something God has laid on your heart that you would like to share with your readers? Well, I did think about that too, because you so graciously sent that question. And what what sort of came to me is the importance of our own stories. 
that so many times people have a family story or they keep telling the story of something special that happened to their grandmother or their grandfather or their great uncle. And, and they diminish their own capacity to tell that story. And so it's, it would, I would love to be able to encourage people that you don't have to be a writer to find something rich in the process of telling that family story, of writing it down. In every book I've written, I thought I knew why I was writing it, that this is a story about, for instance, this woman, Molly, that it's a story about a young girl coming of age and the struggle between two loves in her life, her father and her um, her fiancé, who used to be her father's best friend. But I always learned something that I otherwise never wouldn't have learned if I hadn't written this book. And I think that's what happens with every every one of the books I've written. And I want to encourage people. Sometimes they come to me and say, you should write this story about my great aunt. She was the first woman who was a photographer with some newspaper company or something. And it's a wonderful story. And I always say, if I write it, I would learn something about myself I otherwise wouldn't learn, but I wouldn't learn what you would learn because you're the keeper of that story. And now there are all kinds of classes at community colleges and other places for people to be able to help put down their family story and to not diminish their capacity to do that. At the very least, they will discover things that I think will um, impact their own lives and give them a richness of their own family history that they otherwise wouldn't get. So that's what I would share. I think that's, I think, I think God loves stories and you know, I think one of the great stories, biblical stories that I love are about when the Israelites had wandered for 40 years and they get to go they're at the edge of the promised land and their leaders make them sit down and go over all the stories about what they'd been through and how God had provided for them. And, and I think they did that not just because they understood the power of story, but they understood that until we find the meaning of the stories in our own lives, that we're destined to wander in a wilderness, even though we're so close to the promised land. So that's what I would, that's what I would encourage people to consider the power of their own stories. That's a really good point. Well, let's go ahead and dive into talking about your latest release, Beneath the Bending Skies. Molly Sheehan has spent much of her life striving to be a dutiful daughter and honor her father's wishes, even when doing so has led to one heartbreak after another. After all, what options does she truly have in 1860s Montana? But providing for her stepfamily during her father's long absences doesn't keep her from wishing for more. When romance blooms between her and Peter Ronan, Molly finally allows herself to hope for a brighter future, until her father voices his disapproval of the match and moves her to California to ensure the breakup. Still, time and providence are at work, even when circumstances are at their bleakest. Molly may soon find that someone far greater than her father is in control of the course of her life, and that even the command to honor thy father has its limits. Beneath the Bending Skies is a sweeping story of hospitality, destiny, and the bonds of family. So we have Montana and California in the 1860s, and these both were largely unsettled and wild areas at that time the perfect place to start an adventure. So how did you first learn about Molly and what compelled you to write a fictional account of her story? I first encountered her with some friends actually who were from Montana and they're, they're, they were people who did what I suggested earlier. Someone said, you should write about, <laughs> you know, 
Holly Sheehan. And I said, no, you should write about her. You live in Montana and the story. And she said, no, I think you'd just do a great job. She said, there is. and so she gave me a copy of Girl from the Gulches, which is a memoir of Molly that she wrote when she was probably in her 70s. And I put it aside. I didn't read it for quite a while. Um, and But it cooked in my brain about this girl from the Gulches. And when I read it, I was just struck by this incredible, complicated relationship with a father she just adored and loved and who loved her, but who also was very domineering and very controlling. And then all the details of this, her romance and the difficulties in being able to have that actually turn out to be something they both wanted really seemed like the perfect story to explore how when things don't always go the way we think they should that doesn't mean that they won't at some point later on and so I read about her and she was a wonderful writer and and a good observer so there was lots of really great detail about the life in Montana I'd written a lot about Oregon and Washington and felt like I knew quite a bit about their history. So Montana was a new journey for me. And so that's how I ended up deciding to write the story. The other thing was about it was that I really was ready in my own writing life. I wanted to tell I wanted to tell a story with a really happy ending about people who were really gracious and who were faithful, but who didn't necessarily have everything go smoothly. But it was that hospitality part that I was really intrigued with. And she was beloved later in her life, especially. And and part of it was because of her great generosity and hospitality. Wow, she sounds like a really cool lady. And I love reading memoirs to see what people thought about their own life, like what they were proud of, the things that they accomplished, and you know what they felt was important to mention in their lives. So that's really cool. Now, Molly's husband, Peter, becomes the Indian agent appointed by the Secretary of the Interior for the Flathead Reservation. What all did this role entail? Well, it was almost like being a governor of a state or think of a mayor of a town because it was a large reservation. It had been around for a really long time, and most of the natives there were were Catholic, they that they had had an early experience with conversion and were very had really good relations with their neighbors who were ranchers. They were very successful ranchers themselves, most of the natives. And so Peter came because they were on reservations and there were new rules that were being formulated. This was the eighteen seventies. And there were new rules about whether they could hunt or where they could hunt. And the buffalo at that time were declining, so they'd have to go far away to hunt. And so he had to negotiate a lot with local people whose land they would be going through in order to hunt. There were several employees that he had to hire. There were physician and physician's assistant. There was a, a miller. There was a lumber mill. There were agriculturalists, there were orchards, and then because it was a really well-operated agency and he was very successful in what he did, plus he had to write lots of reports, and he, so people began to visit, and they would have to entertain sometimes 16 to 18 people at a meal, and they also served all of the employees who, just a few, the doctor had his own cottage and the agriculturalist had his own cottage and they had their families with them. 
but the rest of the people lived in kind of barrack-like, employees lived in kind of barrack-like structures, or they were Native people who lived in surrounding communities. I mean, he had to, if there were disputes or if there was illness or anything like that, he had to um, be responsible. And then he had to ride to Missoula to get their payment and their salaries and ride back with a large sum of cash on him. And so there were dangerous things that had to happen. And then in the middle of all that, there was also, there were flourishes and then there were serious wars that went on during that time period that he also had to help intervene to keep the agency people safe, but also hopefully reduce a lot of intense anxieties of other people about the Indian wars. Yeah, so he was, and he learned the language for that purpose and and really became part of the part of the community. And that I love that. I love that part of it. I worked on a reservation for 17 years and it's a, it is a, it's a wonderful walk through another way to see the world. And he was able to do that and still maintain his own Catholic faith and Molly too. And at the same time, be really respective of differences that he was exposed to. Wow. I guess I never really thought about what all it would entail, but it's a crazy big job. And it seems like he was someone who really devoted himself to doing a good job at it. So it probably required even more work and effort than if he had just been someone trying to skate by on the bare minimum. Well, the other thing was that it was like the perfect, you know, all the, his background, he had been a newspaper owner and writer and had lost to fire. The history of the West is really written in the fires that have happened. And, and then he was a miner and they lost a lot of money because of theft. And then he worked in a political campaign. He did not want to run himself, but he was really a good diplomat and very personable. He had great ideas and, and very articulate. He he helped elect some his really good friend who was the only state representative. Montana only had one state representative, still only has one because of population. And and then he lost his job again after the election and and then this job opened up and it was like out of the blue. They didn't know anyone in the Department of Interior The person they'd worked for was not the party who got elected. And yet here was the job that required all those skills, diplomacy, writing, creativity, the ability to interact well with a variety of people. And here was the job and gets this offer to go visit. And he went and he sent a letter back to Molly and said, you are going to love this place. Just sell all the furniture, sell the house. I'll be back in in 10 days to pick you up and the kids, and we're going to start this new life in the shadow of the Mission Mountains. And and I had the luxury of being able to read some of those letters and read his reports that he would write back every month to the federal government about what was happening and food supplies and dealing with the traders and all of these disputes or how he managed it. So it was a rich historical research project too. Wow, like a real life hero. It must have been a lot of fun riding him into Beneath the Bending Skies. I hope I've done him justice and Molly too. So, While themes of family are also big in this story, and you refer to your novel as the sandwich generation of the 1800s. So what do you mean by the statement? Well, I, there are a number of people in my life 
who are of an age where they're working, they have children and they're working and they're trying to take care of their families. And they also have aging parents who they are concerned about. And maybe because we're much more mobile now, the aging parents are in another state. And there's this pressure. I see them as the meat in this sandwich when their family is one slice of bread and their parents is another slice of bread. And that's what had happened for Molly, that when she and Peter do get married and her father does not approve of the marriage, he attends the wedding, but he cries the whole time. And and they leave San Juan Capistrano, which is where he had moved them to four years earlier. And so she and Peter go back to Helena, Montana, and start their life there. But she gets letters from her father about, oh, you really need to come here. And then her stepmother, who she adored, uh, was ill. And you really need to come here. And as she had children, travel between Montana and California was partly by stage, partly by train, sometimes partly by ship. And it was a complicated affair and it was expensive. And once they got to the, as part of the agency, she was very valuable. She was working basically because she handled all of the purchases for the supplies for the household and and had dealt with her own staff to staff the household and there was laundresses that had to be hired and um, because they did the laundry for everybody else in the agency and so she was torn because she was needed there and, and Peter needed her and her children needed her to be there and at the same time she felt great guilt that she couldn't be there to both to try to bridge this fracture with her father but also because she was concerned about her half-sister and brother, and her stepmother. She was the meat in the two slices of bread in that sandwich. And so I wanted to explore what that would have been like for her and maybe have some insights from it that might help particularly women that are in the same situation today and have it be somewhat approachable for contemporary women. Yes, we think of it as such a modern thing just because, you know, Maybe the previous generation didn't see as much of it or the generation before that, but it's not like it's never happened before. So that's neat. Taking taking a look at history, we might could pick up a few tips here and there. <laughs> well, could you share with us any future book news that you may have? Um, I don't have any. <laughs> so, Well, I, I do. I have some future book news. I have this great book, Beneath the Bending Skies, which is coming out September 6th. And I'm so grateful that it is part of Ravel's collection of great books that they publish. And But it is my last book for a while. My husband is 92 and he has a lot of health problems. And we are selling our house and moving to California full time. We've been spending six months a year there. And so this year, I just said, I, I just can't I can't put a book together and have it have it ready by September 1st, which is when I would have turned the manuscript in. And so I do have a story idea. I was actually doing some research this past weekend. It's an Oregon Coast story, but I have no idea when it might appear. And at this point, it's just a twinkle in my eye. And I get the joy of hopefully promoting and seeing Beneath the Bending Skies touch the lives of other people for the next few months and maybe years in the future and and get resettled in in California. 
thank you for sharing Beneath the Bending Skies with us. I hope you and your husband just get settled in and just have a wonderful time. It's nice that you can still write, even if you're not publishing. If that story is just calling to you, you can just sit down and write for however long you want or some nonfiction and journaling. And you always have that. So that's wonderful. And I'll still do my monthly newsletter, which is called Story Sparks. And people can sign up for that. And it's it's usually just a, it's a piece about what's happening in my writing life, but it's also a short essay like those ones I like to write at the back of magazines about hopefully to encourage people wherever they are. I get lots of letters back when one comes out and said, whenever I see that story sparks in my inbox, I just start to smile because I know I'm going to feel better. Um, so I'm delighted that can still happen. I can still encourage people, even though I don't have a, a full-length book to share. Yeah, and just you can stay connected with us. <laughs> yes, exactly. So listeners, Jane is offering a copy of Beneath the Bending Skies. And to enter to win, just go to our giveaway page on the website, historicalbookworm.com. There'll also be the link in our show notes, and we will include signing up for... Jean's newsletter, Story Sparks, that will be one of the methods in entering the giveaway. Jane, are there any other ways that our guests can learn more about you? Well, uh, I do have a website, and if they go to jkbooks.com backslash about, they'll find out all kinds of things about me, and also the links to my Facebook page, my author page, and other ways to connect with me. So hopefully a visit to the website will help them find me most easily. Well, thank you for coming on the show. It has been a delight chatting with you. Well, I have enjoyed chatting with both of you. It's been great. Now for a pinch of the past. In this Pinch of the Past, we will be looking at different kinds of exhibits featured at the Paris Exposition in 1900. These include one very special exhibit from the United States and a truly unique exhibit that ended in tragedy. Types of exhibits included art, industry, decoration, agriculture, motion picture, world live recreations, so reenactments of famous Spanish battles. Oh, wow. I know. <laughs> okay. Theaters and music halls. Uh, there was a Palace of National Manufactures, the Palace of Electricity, and the Water Castle. But no fair would be truly a fair without the traditional, then brand new, Ferris wheel. So the wheel in Paris was 360 feet high. With 40 cars, it would carry up to 1,600 passengers in a single voyage. Now, it was called the Grand Row de Paris, but also took its name from the creator of the first giant wheel, George Washington Gale Ferris Jr. He first presented the wheel at the World's Columbian Exposition in Chicago, 1893. Wow, but a considerably larger one appeared seven years later. Carrying, it could carry a thousand passengers at once. Yeah, and imagine going 360 feet into the air. And they probably didn't even have seat buckles. I know. They were standing in a car, like, full of 40 people. <laughs> yeah, it, it just goes to show that their inventions back then and their architecture was actually pretty sound. 
But it it freaks me out personally when I think (laughs) of all the safety regulations and everything that goes into our rides these days and how they didn't have that exactly. Then they just went up 360 feet on a wheel. Yeah, I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) I know I should have Googled like accidents at the World Fair in 1900. (laughs) Yeah, maybe not. So another feature was the Globe Celesti. This was a globe painted blue and gold, and it was 180 feet in diameter. It sat right beside the Eiffel Tower. Upon its sides were painted the constellations and signs of the Zodiac. Unfortunately, this exhibit was also the site of a tragedy when on April 29th, the pedestrian bridge collapsed, killing nine people and injuring several others. As a result of the investigation that took place, the Committee on Reinforced Cement was created on December 19, 1900. At the end of the investigation, the city of Paris was held responsible because they conducted excavations too close to the bridge, which led to its collapse. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. It's always sad when something like that happens. And it was only like a week and a half into the, it was April 29th. So it was only like a week and a half into the exhibition. So circling back around to last week's episode on countries, France invited 56 countries from around the world to come and highlight their achievements from the last century. 40 attended, plus additional colonies from France, the Netherlands, Great Britain, and Portugal. So the United States Pavilion was a modest version of the United States Capitol building. While the main focus of the U.S. presentations was on the commerce and industry, it also held an exhibit of American Negroes at the Palace of Social Economy. This display exhibited the progress and growth of African Americans at the turn of the century. The exhibit included four bound volumes of nearly 400 official patents filed by African Americans, a statue of Frederick Douglass, and over 500 photos of African American men, women, homes, churches, businesses, and landscapes. And I actually found a photo of part of this display and put it on our website. So I thought that was very interesting. And I'm glad that was there, especially in 1900s. So we're talking 122 years ago. It's interesting that, like you say, that it would be so prominently displayed that the U.S. was proud of the progress that their African-American population had made. It may be worth noting that this was about 16 years, I believe, before a film came out Mm. called The Birth of a Nation, which almost Mm -hmm. single-handedly restarted the Ku Klux Klan. So it could be that public sentiment was actually headed in the right direction. And then, of course, unfortunately, it had to backslide. Mm. But that's, Mm -hmm. that's cool. That was a really prominent part of what they brought to the exposition. Yeah, yeah. It's nice to see... They didn't do everything wrong. Right. So in the next part of this Paris Exposition series, we will be looking at the criticisms as well as some interesting data. That pinch of the past will be part of episode 43, a book chat about A Gem of Truth by Kimberly Woodhouse and a review of The Number of Love by Rosanna M. White. Time for our bookworm review. In 1928, soot from the local mills and music from the speakeasies linger in the Pittsburgh air. 
When the manager of the Kelly Club is found dead, nightclub singer Vera Pembroke is thrust into peril. As the only witness to the crime, she's sentenced to hide away in the Algony Forest with a stuffy police sergeant as her guardian. Sergeant McDenelo harbors a burning hatred for Pittsburgh's underworld after the devastation it left on his life and heart. He should be out exposing culpable gangsters rather than tending to the impetuous woman who defies his every effort to keep her safe. Mick and Vera must set aside their differences to solve the murder that someone wants to keep buried beneath the soot of Steel City. Hello, dearies. This is Angela Bell, bringing you today's Bookworm Review. You can connect with me at my website, www.authorangelabell.com. From Chapter 1 of The Red Canary, Rachel Scott McDaniel's atmospheric prose enveloped me like the looming mist of a noir film, transporting my imagination to the 1920s. This book truly has it all. Page-turning action and mystery, a strong spiritual theme ingrained in the narrative, compelling characters with moxie and heart, historic details that make the music, fashion, and lingo of the decade come alive, and one laugh-out-loud hilarious scene I won't soon forget. If you enjoy murder mysteries and are fascinated by the Roaring Twenties, you're sure to think the Red Canary is the cat's meow.